It's a huge pleasure to welcome you to the first episode of The Developer Tribe, a podcast that delves into the process and practice of sports coaches, educators and beyond, offering their insight and giving us cause to reflect. Thank you for being here, however you got here. And with that, welcome to The Tribe and let's jump in. My guest today is exactly who I would have wanted for our first exploration into the podcast world. He's been a guiding mentor, confidant, coach, critical friend, and much more. His professional life has taken many twists and turns along the way owing to a hugely varied skill set that saw him study as an artist, then photographer, football coach, and in his words, an inevitable return to university after 14 years to train as a teacher. Having witnessed firsthand his unerring diligence and desire to develop young people in his and Collie's care, I'm mildly jealous of the kids that have had him as their educator. He was later appointed as an educational needs coordinator, and his perspective on the role of education and the human side of the teacher is a consistent source of functional implication. Perhaps his only flaw is believing Liverpool were lucky last season. My interest and own journey into football coaching owes much to this man as a coach, teammate and most importantly brother, Welcome to the show, Chris Jones. <laughs> what an awesome introduction, Tim. Thank you very much, bro. I really appreciate that. It's really good to be here. Of course. Thanks for joining me. Uh, you know, when Dad used to say, we have a face for radio, do you think this is what he meant? <laughs> I think we're in the right place right now, yeah. <laughs> so to, to kick us off, I, I wanted to ask you, what was hardest about changing your career to teaching? Wow. What an opening question. I like it. I think probably the hardest part in some respects was having to look back on years, if not decades, of having made the absolute rigid and resolute decision never ever to be a teacher, uh, which was maybe perhaps from having grown up in a household that our, our mum and dad were both teachers, uh, the lifestyle that it, that it allowed and the lifestyle that it didn't. Um, but the toll, I think, that it, it appeared to take on them and what that meant for us as as kids. And there was just something about the overall feeling that it it wasn't for me. Um, so when, as you absolutely rightly put, the inevitable happened, and I, I found myself back at university uh, studying um, to, to become a Key Stage 2 primary school teacher, off the back of the journey of teaching photography and going, and going through the some early football coaching badges, it was just those those mo- it was dealing with those moments of disbelief. It was dealing with those moments of uh, wonderment, and sort of reconciling them in terms of who I was becoming. I guess um, might be the right moment to say I had a sort of uh, critical moment in the journey, pretty much exactly halfway through my training, standing pretty much halfway between the car and the school that I was working at. And with all these folders and files under my arms, having to make a decision of if I turn back to the car at this point, that's my training over, that's this career concluded before it's even really properly begun. Or if I carry on up this pathway and into that school, then I'm really going to do this. And this was occurring at a moment when I was wavering and faltering. Uh, But ultimately, I took the decision to head into the school and uh, 14 years later, find myself in front of you doing a podcast I'm very glad you are what do you think it was that made you set foot in the school that day 
uh, stubbornness, uh, bloody-mindedness. Uh, yeah, well, I think of the pair of us, we've always had an absolute desire to do something and to do something really well. And I think to have come away from the graft and the effort and the learning that had gone on up to that point would actually have felt like would have felt like I'd been beaten by it or I'd surrendered to it in some way. I think there was a, a sort of a rationale perhaps as well of finish the course, get the qualification. And just like others, you know, not, not necessarily everybody who qualifies as a teacher or as a coach, et cetera, actually pursues that, that line. Um, but what a life experience that, that training was and the people that I had the pleasure of working alongside. So, uh, yeah, it was a, a decision made with both head and heart, I think, at that point. And there are hundreds of kids who have benefited from you making that choice. Jumping to right now, tell us what's happening in your career. Okay, uh, I find myself now having just left uh, mainstream school and working as a, well, working at the beginnings of the career of a full-time tutor where I'll work one-to-one with children um, and potentially one-to-one with children with some specific learning needs or specific learning difficulties uh, that I, I found myself working uh, like areas that I worked heavily in in the last three years of my, my time at school. Um, a little bit extra sort of behind the scenes is a, a project called Earth Kids that I work on um, with my brother-in-law and his nurture ecology, ecology company, which is a, an educational branch where we're looking to educate and teach children about the wonders of nature and the outside world and inevitably and hopefully there will be crossovers between the two of supporting children's learning needs uh, out in the, the amazing environment that we have especially here in jersey um, so it's somewhere that i've been hoping to be for a few years uh, in some respect but um, how incredibly valuable the last three years working in uh, primary school have been have been for me and they really helped form the tutor that I am uh, embarking on today. That's great. Best of luck with it. One of the selfish reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast was to talk about your previous role as an educational needs coordinator. Could you tell us how you felt when you were approached for that role? Oh, wow. Uh, uh, Timing was beautiful. Timing was everything because actually the uh, the headmaster knocked on the door. I was teaching in a year five class at the time. And he came in and he said, don't say anything. Just listen. Would you be interested in? And before he'd even finished the sentence, I said, yes, that is what I want to do. Um, incredible lady had had the role before me and she uh, retired um, a little bit unexpectedly, changed her circumstance. And all of a sudden the role was available and it absolutely could be seen as a, a job for life. So when the opportunity came, there was no way I was going to pass up on it. I felt very humbled. I felt very privileged. Um, and really because I had no right really to take the role on. Um, it's the kind of role that most headmasters would have advertised to experienced SENCOs or ENCOs, Educational Needs Coordinator. But instead, he turned to me and was actually willing to take a chance on me. And for that, I will always be grateful. What do you think the character traits were that he'd identified in you that were going to make you so successful in the role? Uh, Very kind of you to say they were so successful. (laughs) Uh, I would say, I think just 
in staff meetings, training, uh, work with parents and so on, I had just always shown an interest in supporting children who had found schooling in its widest sense a little harder than others. Um, so whether that be academically, emotionally, socially, were, uh, physically, whatever the, the components of the context was, uh, which is very much what the educational needs role uh, was is built around, was built around, and will continue to be built around. So I think I'd just inadvertently thrown my hat in the ring over a, a number of terms working working with this headmaster. A case of doing the job to get the job, perhaps. Uh, in terms of the role, what sounds like a crucial role within the school, could you take us through your process? Uh, well, do you know what? One of the, the incredible things that the, the head did for me um, was when I took the role over, he didn't tell me what it had to look, sound, or be like. Uh, likewise, I was very much given the first year in role to figure out what I thought it needed to look, sound, and be like. Uh, so I was really given the opportunity to own it. And I think that for a role of that importance, I think for me to be able to engage and give of my best in it, that was a that was a critical management move that he made. And he got absolutely spot on as far as I was concerned because it gave me the license. But at the same time, I was being given that, that free reign within the structure and confines of state schooling. Um, so the process for me in terms of being in the job uh, was was almost quite the opposite of winging it. It was absolutely crossing the T's and dotting the I's as per all the people that I had around me. It's a solitary role. You work in your office on your own quite a lot. You sit in meetings on your own quite a lot. You go to training on your own quite a lot. But the balance of it that worked really well, that the whole purpose of the that first year in particular, the process therein was about getting people around me, getting people into the school that knew better than I did and still do and to learn as much from them as I could. Yeah, I know firsthand just how deliberate you are in your, your approach. What were some of the principles that you took in to basically creating this role? Uh, I think the, um, the, the, the phrase that the headmaster gave me when he, he explained that to be a full-time ENCO in a a state's primary school is a, a rarity. Most people are either the deputy head, perhaps the head, at least a, a classroom teacher, and with that, a couple of roles of responsibility with regards to key or core subjects. Um, whereas this role was being presented to me with none of those responsibilities. So he said, to be able to justify this role, the actual financial implications of this role in schools, he said it has to be the Rolls Royce of educational needs support and I, I think that that was very much the underpinning analogy and the underpinning um, essence of how the role needed to to begin it just needed to be going towards excellence in every area whether we were supporting an individual in dealing with fractions in maths in year three through to dealing with a child that's going through um, child and adolescent mental health services uh, and is on the uh, autism spectrum disorder. It didn't matter that the, the greatest of the great or the smallest of the small both needed to be approached with excellence at whatever opportunity. 
a role of high expectations then and clearly within that role you have to have interactions with the teachers in the school they'll have their own priorities and I suppose my main interest in your role as an educational developer is how do you go about aligning what you need to get done with what their job is yeah okay uh yeah a combination of um coercion suggestion and and threat really uh Uh, I think the most important point you make there is that having been a teacher myself, and I I guess it it was a case of always remembering what were the pressures I was under as a teacher. And if I could begin any conversation, any suggestion, any signposting with a validation of who the teacher was, where they were at, what they'd already done to address a need or to cope with a difficulty, and using that that technique of validating as the, the first step as I would walk through the door or pick up the phone or respond to an email, um, ever ever mindful of making it um, genuine, uh, but also ever mindful of, of its necessity to be able to show the teacher that I did have a, not, not a knowledge of exactly what they were going through, but an understanding of what the role of the teacher was uh, asking of them and the pressures that they would be under so yeah that that validation and then actually the the next step from that would be honesty actually because especially in the first term to two terms and, and really the first year teachers would ask me questions that I had no idea what the answers were and the best thing that I could say was you know thank you for your inquiry or thank you for your question Thank you for your concern of, of such and such a pupil or such and such a pupil's needs. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what we can do for them that you're not doing already. But leave it with me and I'll go and find out. And in order to have that rapport with those teachers, do you feel that humility that you've described was part of generating authenticity? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that very much. I think um, the authenticity has to be absolutely critical i think there's um there is a there is an an element of a time and a place for being one person in one circumstance and another person in, in another but um at the same time a role of this nature needs absolute consistency the parents have to know exactly where they stand the child has to know exactly where they stand the agent that you might be involved in that's supporting the family or the child and then likewise the teacher and to be anything other than authentic in each of those roles could be counterproductive, exhausting, uh, and would ultimately, I think, leave a little bit of a trail of, of, of um, confusion if there were inconsistencies creeping in. So, yeah, being, being open, being honest, being humble, the hardest part, however, in and amongst that, is also to be that person that then has to set an expectation or set a boundary that then has to be adhered to. It was a role where you were kind of neither everybody's friend, nor were you anybody's um, tormentor, if you see what I mean. It was it was a, a fine line between the two of demanding excellence from others to exact the things that my role needed, but being the, the person to lean upon all at the same time. There's so much to balance then in your relationships and I understand the need for that consistent approach with 
all the myriad possibilities of the needs of the kids you are providing for, there's a huge amount of complexity in there. Yes, How do you reconcile that with the teacher amongst all of the priorities they will have in genuinely striving for holistic development? Mm, okay, uh, awesome question. I'm not sure if my answer will answer it fully. So do answer the question again in a moment, perhaps, uh, Tim. But the first word I think that comes up to, into my head is just patience. I think it was a, a, the need for patience in the role. Uh, we live in a world that is all about the quick fix, the instant solution, um, the, the cream and the ointment or the pill, whatever it might be that just does what it needs to do. But often we were working with, with children or parents or families and circumstances or teachers with even with years of ingrained practice and um, ethos in the work that they do. So a patient approach, planting seeds, nurturing them, developing things gradually, uh, I think was, was critical. And one of the sort of mindsets that I always had in that role was that any pupil that was in that school under my umbrella or under my wing, if you like, uh, was going to be with me for four years, whereas a class teacher would have that individual pupil for one year. So I would try and see what's the four-year journey that's going to go on. What does a four-year journey look like? And how long have I got working with these individual people within that four-year journey? How hard do I have to push? Or how coercive do I have to make my, my management styles, my use of, my use of language, the, the way I write an email, the way I speak in person, the way I speak on the phone, all had to be developed, um, but also hopefully developed consistently. So the person who wrote the email that they read and then spoke to sounded like one in the same rather than two different people. Sounds like perhaps the main barrier to what you were trying to achieve then was a behavioural change within teachers. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I can I can relate to that. Um, whether I class it as a behavioural change in teaching terms or in the teachers' minds, actually, I don't think I would because I think there's still a difficulty in schools of associating behaviour with a negative rather than understanding people's behaviours are things that can really positively impact and affect the environment that they're in. I would say that the school that I was in had had the uh, privilege and pleasure of uh, a community that was very focused on the academic. But over the last 10 to 20 years, the need in schools has increasingly and uh, rapidly adapted and shifted to a social and emotional awareness uh, awareness and a development of those skills in children um, and I can only uh, presume assume try to imagine that for a teacher that's actually in their 30th or 40th year of teaching the range of children and the behavioral needs of children that they've experienced is massive whereas actually I'd only been in teaching 10 years at the point that I took that role on. So the range of child that I had worked with, certainly in the setting of that school, was actually much smaller. So behavioral shifts for myself and perhaps for some of the other teachers were, were less. For others, understandably, they could feel like they were really dealing with a different, a different breed of pupil coming through. Hey, just like we see a different breed of footballer stepping out onto a, a Premier League football pitch, you know, compared to 10, 15, and 20 years ago. 
So a, an understanding of that and an awareness of that, I think, was quite critical. Yeah, I'd say even in my own practice, coaching now for 13, 14 years, that the approach that I've taken when working with especially the younger players, it, it's had to change. And that's probably come with greater knowledge of myself and also coaching practice. But there definitely has been some change. And of course, the new generation coming through will have different needs. What would you describe as through the education system and ENCOs like yourself can be done to acknowledge and support this? I think, um, I think uh, well, to answer that question, I think almost the most important thing is to go back to a point that you've made there, Tim, which is, is your coaching has changed. You have changed as a coach, as a facilitator, as a developer of people. And I'll, and I'll put this on the, on the podcast now by saying, you know, the coaching that I have seen you do has always been absolutely immense and, and a, such a privilege to watch, to see somebody who is developing the player and the person simultaneously in any given session at any point in time. Hence, you find yourself where you are uh, putting together this, the developer tribe. I think as an ENCO, working in the primary school sector, working in the school sector, working for children, it's starting with each individual child as they are, rather than with any presumptions or assumptions of what they could or should be or what they may have been in the past. If you're working in a school of 300, as I was, that means that then you're developing 300 individual profiles. Of the 300 individual profiles, of course, not every child needs the same level of support. So some profiles may run much deeper than others in terms of educational needs. But nonetheless, every pupil there from the, the most gifted and talented to those with the greatest needs have a learning style. They have a, a childhood. They have a background. They have um, childhood experiences. They bring to the table every day and every day that is developing and changing so if if the enco can be an agent of change within any primary school i think possibly the biggest thing they can do the greatest thing they can do is encourage every teacher to look upon their class of 20 and 30 children and see them as 20 to 30 individuals that dare i say it is then incongruent with the driven curriculum through the primary sector the need for objective 37 to be covered on Tuesday at 10. Um, but that is where the teachers are masters of their art and masters of their craft because they find a way to do that despite the myriad of character that they have uh, in front of them at any one given moment in time. And that's where I think there is such overlap between the teacher and the coach when you're in front of a group of kids and you have that holistic bent that it's hugely complex and yeah. takes a great deal of skill, strategizing and planning to achieve. As an ENCO, your role was partly to support the teachers in the needs of the kids that they work with. Were there any particular strategies that you found you were advising them of regularly? Um, yeah, I think probably the thing, the thing that was the hardest to achieve, but the most regularly suggested or recommended and we actually ended up using our learning support assistance uh, in this uh, capacity, was just to say to the teacher or to say to the adults working with that, that child, observe, actually find the time, which is obviously very difficult to do, find the energy and find the insight to actually see what is going on. Um, 
because of the nature of the teacher's job, they're there in front of the whole class and they're managing the whole class all at the same time. We actually deployed a little system where we had learning support assistants assigned to individual kids. And part of their remit would be not to immediately go into the classroom and immediately start supporting X, Y, and Z, or immediately start delivering components A, B, and C of a curriculum. But actually, over the first few weeks, go and get to know the pupil. Go and see the pupil in the playground. Go and watch them up at lunchtime. Get in the classroom and figure out how they learn. And a simple thing would be something like that little lad who is staring out the window and the teacher, because they're assessing and addressing all 20 to 30 children, might ask them to turn and face and give good eye contact and pay attention. But a one-to-one observation can then ascertain whether is that little lad looking out the window, but actually, while some component or element of his, uh, his brain, his mind, is being occupied, he's enjoying the visual or he's soothing with the color or whatever else might be going on, he's actually listening at a really deep, level. Figuring those kind of things out requires people. So again, I think the probably the, the most critical piece of um, guidance or advice that I would give in the early stages is be patient, take your time, and let's get people in to come and see, really see what is going on here before we start firing off interventions and suggestions and speaking to parents or agents. And where does that come from? You know, if I'm a teacher or a coach and I'm just not seeing what you're seeing with all of your expertise and experience, how do I go about developing that ability to notice? Well, I think um, school, schooling and, and coaching and working with people is always about, always about solving problems. It's always about coming up with solutions. And nine times out of ten, my role would take on uh, logistical components. And it may have been something as simple as sitting in a class, observing a lesson, watching a teacher deliver, seeing the impact of the teaching style upon pupil A, for example, and having to find a very professional way of feeding that back to the teacher. But to take it a little step further would be to then identify that in the pupil identify that in occurrence in a classroom and then swap places with the teacher and say okay now we know what we're looking for i'm now going to take your class whether it be something as simple as read a story to do a maths input to take them out for a game session but you now take my role and you observe and see if you can see what i saw and now um, extrapolate from that data everything else the depth of knowledge that you have about that pupil too but again, it, it doesn't necessarily drill down to a, a particular theory or a particular uh, ethos. It just comes down to solving the problems, <clears throat> excuse me, solving the problems, dealing with the logistics and giving the practitioner time to reflect. I think many, many practitioners, myself included, certainly in the past, are going from um, post to post to post. And there isn't a lot of time to stop and look back and reflect on where you've come from and what impact your practice had. It's so much about the planning and the preparation of the next one. Um, Asking a teacher, asking a coach to stop and reflect is asking them to find time. So the greatest gift, if you like, then that a role like this could afford was 
providing time. Yeah, that's very interesting. And again, big overlaps with the reported experiences of sports coaches with reflective practice. When you became an ENCO, I have to admit, I had to look it up to find out more and more about it. And I know many in the UK are called SENCOs, so I appreciate they might be a slightly different role. But many of them in the articles I found spoke about a relentless paperwork and consequently a lack of time to ensure that there is a strategy in place as being the biggest challenge for them. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, very much, very much so. And I think ultimately, as this sort of brings us to, to this this point in the conversation, this is, it was part of the catalyst, part of the um, shift in energy to come out of that role, which absolutely was a dream job and a job for life, and become a tutor. And, and it, the, reason, the reason behind that was that there was such a, a need for paper, paper trail, um, tick boxes and form filling to be able to pull in the support and the, uh, the additional help uh, for any individual pupil, that I actually found that my role, even though it has the child at the absolute heart and center of it, I was finding that in my role, I was possibly the person that was furthest away from actually working with the child. So now I find myself in conversation with the parent, preparation of a session for a pupil, and the next part of the process is I get to spend the next hour of my life working with the pupil, learning about them, building a rapport with them, hopefully, finding out about them, and then going back to the parent with a range of strategies and suggestions and answers and offers that I can make as an individual, as well as at that point saying, let's signpost you in these directions to, to these people that are far more experienced or far better than I am in, in these different areas, and ultimately helping the parent build a team up around them, of which I am a part. Whereas in the ENCO role, my job was very much becoming build a team around the parent, the child, of which actually once that team was in place, I was then no longer a part. So I, I wasn't able to actually work side by side with the child, which is ultimately where all of this truly began. You become more of a manager of the process rather than an integral part of it. Absolutely perfect, yes. And as incredible as that was, and as valuable as it was, um, from a ultimately from a job satisfaction and from a career direction point of view, it was it had just become something that I didn't truly want it to be. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much for offering your knowledge and speaking candidly about your role and career progression. Being the first person on this podcast, I'm sure there's a lot of value for those listening. I wanted to ask you, if you could have an audience with anyone you wanted, who would that be? <laughs> wow. Uh, how many people am I allowed? Uh, we're going to say one. We're going to say we're gonna one. Say well, we're going to keep it real simple, are we? We're going to say one. Well, well I'll, I'll do... Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll raise you and I'll go for two. <laughs> I was, You're already it, breaking the rules here. <laughs> I mean, to have time with... Um, the incredible philosopher and philosophies of Alan Watts would be absolutely phenomenal. But in this day and age, and actually right now, the person that immediately springs to my mind, the person that I would, I would want an audience with, that I would want to talk to about their life, their life experiences, and how they've become the person they've become, is actually Eddie Vedder, the lead vocalist of Pearl Jam. And my reasons would be to pick up on a point that you made earlier on, Tim, 
would be there is somebody who I see and I hear through his lyrics and through his uh, presentation, through his interviews, through what he's done and what he hasn't done, irrespective of whether he's got things right or wrong. He is someone who comes across to me as authentic. And to be around people who are authentic is something that is a pleasure, a privilege, something incredibly important to me at, at this moment in time. But with it, it's someone also who is a, a male role model who has quite clearly demonstrated uh, either an ability or a willingness to immerse and engage himself in the emotional world, to write about it, ultimately to sing about it, and to help hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people through his words, through his experiences, without for a minute pretending to be someone or something that he's not. So that would be, if he has the time, that would be awesome. If you could arrange it, I'd really appreciate it. I'll start work on it. It might take a while, but I'll, I'll keep it up there. Nice. Thank you. Stephanie. Stephanie. Merci beaucoup. All right. Well, look, before I let you go, how do people find you? How do people find me? They can get the easiest way to get in touch with me just at the moment uh, is by email. If anybody has any questions or comments or, or anything they want me to signpost them towards, etc., it would be my email, which is corelearningjersey at gmail.com. All, all one word, all lowercase. That's great. Thank you so much. And just leaves me to say, welcome to the tribe. Fantastic, bro. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And that draws us to a close of the very first episode of the Developer Tribe. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to my guest Chris for taking the plunge with me and offering such insight into his role and practice in education. I hope it gives you cause to reflect on your own practice and do take Chris up on his kind offer of reaching out to him. If there's anyone you want to hear from or you yourself want to jump on the pod with me, give me a shout via email. I'd be only too glad to hear from you. The music you are listening to is by BB Phoenix. Go check her work out on the links in the description. That just leaves me to say I hope this finds you well and look forward to having you with us again soon.